When you're playing basketball, one of the most embarrassing experiences is getting blocked. If you play basketball, you know what I mean. You go up to shoot the ball and someone you didn't see knocks it right out of your hands and stuffs you. And then you may hear someone laugh or snicker or say those taunting words, rejected or denied. But however you feel in that moment, you need to get back in the game because getting blocked is a part of playing the sport of basketball. And as unpleasant as it is, I've never met someone who loves the sport of basketball quit playing because the other team blocked their shots. No, it's a part of the game. The other team will oppose and will block you. People will reject and will deny you. But this is true not just in basketball. This is true in life. Rejection is the shared experience of all humans. You will experience rejection in your life, and you probably already have. Whether it's by bullies at school, or from someone who hates your guts and refuses to talk to you. We all experience rejection to some degree. And I'm sure you'd agree, it's not a nice feeling. Because deep down, all of us want to be accepted by others, and rejection says, you don't belong here, go away. And if we're honest, it causes us to be insecure because we may care too much what people think of us. For some of us, being rejected may be one of the greatest fears in our life. It touches some of our deepest insecurities, doesn't it? Well, if all humans experience some sort of painful rejection in life, this is even more so true of all Christians. It's a part of our life as believers. In this world, if you love Jesus and seek to obey him, you will be rejected, even hated, for his name's sake. The world hated Christ, and they will hate us too. And what's remarkable is that Jesus actually sends us to bring good news to those very haters. But he doesn't leave us without aid. He sends us help for the mission, namely the Holy Spirit, who we just learned about. And the Holy Spirit, being God, empowers us, God's people, to advance Christ's name in a world full of Christ's haters and church haters. This morning, I'd like us to look at John chapter 15 and 16 together. So please open your Bible to John chapter 15. And as you do, let me remind you that John 14 through 17 has typically been called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. And here Jesus is having a heart-to-heart, -heart, some of his last words with his disciples in the last few hours of his life before the cross. These chapters give us a feel for Christ's heart for his people. They're intimate words. And here we overhear some remarkable teaching from Jesus to his first 11 followers. And what do we overhear? Christ is continually stressing 
in this section the relationship these believers have with the Trinity. It is just remarkable God's timing of our children's time and the sermons these days. But he's continually stressing the relationship of these believers and the relationship they have with the Trinity, the triune God. He tells them in various ways truths that they can't grasp yet. Truths that relate to their relationship with God himself. He talks about his relationship with the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. He also tells them about their relationship with him, the Son of God, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he do this? To leave us material for future theology textbooks? I think not. Rather, I think he emphasizes their relationship with the Trinity because what they're about to face and do will require a vital relationship with the true God. So they must know who they are and whose they are before they're sent to reach the world that hates them and hates their Savior. They must grasp the depths and the reaches of their relationship with the true God because, as Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. This is also true for us today, friends. These verses give us a clear view on the spiritual climate we Christians are sent into today. Jesus speaks with an authoritative realism in this passage. And though he spoke these words long ago, the spiritual conditions haven't changed. What was true then about the world is still true today. Today we'll see that Christ's followers will be rejected. Now before we read this text, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you'd give us great confidence in your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts through your word, and that we would trust in you as we seek to live this life in this world in a way that pleases and obeys you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in this passage is that Christ's followers will be hated by the world. Christ's followers will be hated by the world. Look with me at verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it, ha know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The word world here represents unbelieving humanity that fills society and culture. Individuals who belong to this world aren't neutral or innocent creatures. Rather, the world is full of unbelieving moral responders who rebel against God all day, every day. Contrary to what we may want to believe, everyone who doesn't follow Christ is actually at odds with God. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you see many contrasts between the world and those who follow Jesus. For example, John will contrast darkness with light. He will contrast belief with unbelief. And in these verses, we see the contrast between those who belong to Jesus and those who belong to the world. 
Now, all of us, by nature, once did belong to this world. That is to say, none of us were born Christians, even if we were born in Christian families. We were all born sinners, rebels against God. But if we're followers of Christ now, that's because Jesus called us out of the world. We were once all of the world. But when we're converted, we belong to Jesus. We don't belong to the world anymore. He called us out of the world. Because as verse 19 says, Jesus chose us out of the world. And because of this, the world actually hates us. Jesus says, everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But this hatred that we who follow Jesus, this animosity that we feel from the world around us, from unbelieving society and culture, is not unique to us. Jesus himself experienced it too. In fact, he experienced it first. He was despised and rejected by those he created and came to save. Listen to verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If we're connected to Jesus and we're seeking to obey and please him by becoming more like him, we will be persecuted. We'll be hated. Because he was persecuted, and he was hated, and we're following after him. And since Jesus was persecuted in this world, we as his servants, as his followers, as believers in him, should expect the same treatment. Because we're no greater than our master, are we? And Jesus says, if they persecuted him, they will also persecute us we will experience like treatment. But keep in mind that when people deny us because we are Christians, ultimately they're denying Christ. When people hate us because we bring Jesus up, ultimately they're hating Christ. And as we'll see, they're denying Christ. Their hatred of Christ is actually because of their immoral commitments. Their immoral heart commitments. Look at verses 21 through 25. But all these things they will do. Notice in this text, as we continue today, how many times Jesus says will do. He gives us many guarantees. On to verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the, wor uh, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. 
Here Jesus says that the world will hate his followers because it hated him and his father. The world's rebellion against the name of Christ proves that the world opposes God and opposes his ways. And their actions and attitudes make a clear case for their guilt before him. Don Carson explains quite well these verses. He says this, To hate Jesus is to hate God. Just as to accept Jesus is to accept his Father. So tightly is Jesus bound up with his Father, both in his person and in his words and deeds, that every attitude directed toward him is no less directed toward God. And nobody has an excuse for hating Christ. Jesus says here, they hated me without a cause. And if our hatred towards Christ continues till we die, we won't die and go to a better place. Rather, we'll stand guilty before God. And this is where all of us are by nature. And this is also why all of us need Christ himself to call us out of the world. Because by nature, we all hate God. We all belong to the world. Even if we're nice people, even if we're polite people, we too must be born again. Friend, do you love or hate Jesus? I know I'm imposing now, but do you love or hate it when people tell you that you need Jesus? You cannot love God and hate Jesus. What you're doing with Jesus in your heart right now is what you're doing with God. Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. So what are you doing with Jesus right now? I remember the first time I saw for myself that people really did hate Jesus. Even here in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I was a new Christian and because I had been touched by the love of Christ, I wanted to tell my friends about him, and so I did. And, they, it, and that didn't go so well for me. Because when I started doing this, I found that my friends reacted in hostile ways. One of my best friends almost got violent with me because he felt betrayed since I was following Jesus now. He rejected and hated me, and so did the rest of my old crew. Just instantly, they had vanished. And it was a terrible feeling because I care what people think about me. And maybe at times I care too much. But they hated me because they hated the Christ in me. I didn't belong to them anymore. I was called out of the world and was sent to speak to the world about Jesus, but the world hated me now. And so they rejected me. Friend, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I want you to count the cost. Be aware of the risks involved. Following Jesus may mean that you'll lose all your friends. It may mean social sabotage. You won't fit in anymore. But is Jesus worth that to you? 
If so, get well acquainted with verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Next, we'll see that though we'll face great opposition and hatred and rejection in this world, Christ's followers will be witnesses to the world. Look at verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now Jesus says he and the Father will send the Helper, which refers here to the Holy Spirit. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, will aid and accompany these disciples. And why does he do this? As Michael Green says, the church received the Spirit not for its selfish secret enjoyment, but to enable it to bear witness for Christ. This refers especially to when the Holy Spirit came to enable the early church on the day of Pentecost. He came to live in them so they'd effectively witness to people about Jesus. And while they spoke about Christ, the Holy Spirit also spoke. And the same is true today. When we speak about Christ, the Holy Spirit is also speaking through us. And when the Spirit speaks through us, He speaks deeper than us. Because He speaks to people's hearts. His witness is the best witness of all. Leon Morris says it well. There is a responsibility resting on all Christians to bear their witness to the facts of saving grace. They cannot evade this. But the really significant witness is that of the Holy Spirit. For he alone can bring home to the hearts of men the truth and the significance of all this. Witnessing and preaching without the Holy Spirit is like going to war without weapons. And the most effective witness in the church is God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who opens people's hearts to receive Christ. He is the one who writes His Word on people's hearts. He is the one who reveals the meaning and significance of the Gospel to people. And without His witness, our witness, our words are just that. They're just words. We rely on the work of the Spirit as we share the good news of Christ. Friend, is this an experience that you've had? Have you had the witness of the Spirit in your heart? Have you ever heard something from the Bible that warned you, warned you, or called you out personally? And you just couldn't deny that God, the Holy Spirit, was speaking to you? Have you ever felt the Word come to life as it was brought to bear on your soul? If so, rejoice and be glad. Because this is the wonderful work and witness of the Spirit. He takes the words of Christ and brings them to bear on our soul, on our heart. And He speaks the message and meaning of Christ to us personally. 
Has the Spirit been witnessing to your heart about Jesus? Have you believed in him? Has he made Christ personally significant to you? I pray so. Now with this in mind, our text continues, showing us that Christ's followers will be persecuted by the world. Look at verse 1. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus says these things to keep them from falling away. Now this crowd consists of the 11 disciples, not with Judas. So this is the real, genuine uh, first disciples of Christ. But his words here show us that persecution isn't the greatest danger for the church. The church will be persecuted, indeed. But the greater danger is that Christians will fall away from the faith and abandon Christ. Now look at verse 2 and 3. Let's see how this happens. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming where whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus says persecution is coming. And indeed, if we read church history, we know there has been persecution throughout the ages. And there are many pages of church history that we have not read about persecution as well. But the persecutors, specifically referred to here in verse 2, are those who think they're offering service to God. The persecutors are religious folks. These first believers would experience it firsthand. They would be thrown out of the synagogues. They would be excommunicated from the very community they once belonged to. The very religious community they once belonged to. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see how this happened to them. Those who were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry would suffer persecution as they preached his death and resurrection to the world. But this didn't stop them from preaching his death and resurrection to the world. While the rebellious world is marked by a hatred towards Christ and us, his followers, we Christians are to be marked with a courageous love in the, faith, in the face of such opposition and persecution. This comes from the Spirit. Look at verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that, their hour, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus says these things to his disciples, so his disciples won't be overwhelmed when the fiery trials of persecution come. But when it hits, Christ's words will ring in their ears. I could just imagine them remembering his words, maybe thinking of Peter because I relate a lot to Peter, and maybe you do too, I could just think of a time where the Spirit comes upon Peter and he remembers that Jesus told him and looked at him and said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus tells them these things so that when persecution hits, they are not overwhelmed by the fiery trials. Each Christian and each church must remember today that the goal of our life is not popularity in this world. 
Our aim is not to be the coolest Christian or the coolest church the world has ever seen. Our aim is to please the Father by living a life of obedience to Him. We aren't in a popularity contest seeking the crowd's applause. We're to represent Christ to the people God sends us to. So Christian, let me ask you, who has God sent you to? Are you representing Christ well? Are you being tempted, or are you being tempted to abandon Him right now? Well, how in the world will we advance the name of Christ in such a hateful place, in such a hateful world? With so many dangers around us, how will we advance the name of Jesus? Answer, Christ's followers will be accompanied by the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now reality is starting to sink in for these disciples. Jesus is seriously about to leave them. And this is starting to fill their hearts with sorrow and loss. They've been with him for three years. But here Jesus reveals his compassion for them. He emphasizes that though he is physically leaving, he's going to the cross. And that is good news. He's going to die for their sins. That is good news. Then he's going to be raised again and ascend to the Father. And once he sits down at the Father's right hand, redemption is accomplished for them. That's good news, but there's more. After this, after his cross work and resurrection is done, he and his Father will send the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to everyone on earth and throughout history who believes that Jesus is Lord. That's good news. So no wonder he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Much like Jesus had already said in John 14, the Holy Spirit was going to indwell these disciples in the near future at Pentecost. Listen to what Jesus says in those verses. In John 14, verses 16 through 17, he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's sending another his ministry will be continued through the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, my ESV study Bible says, He will indwell Jesus' followers forever, functioning as Jesus' emissary in His physical absence. This does not mean that there was no work of the Spirit of God within believers prior to this time, but rather that the Spirit the Holy Spirit will be in you in a new and more powerful sense after Pentecost. 
Now, what can we expect when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit? In verses 8 through 11, we see that when the Holy Spirit comes into the world, not only does he have a ministry to believers, he also has a ministry to the unbelieving world. And what is that? He will convict the world. Not only does the Spirit come to help the church witness, he also comes to the church's aid when she's suffering persecution. When she's hated and wronged by the world, the Holy Spirit comes in and cross-examines the opposition. Now, it says that he will convict the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we'll take each in turn. In verses 8 through 9, it says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, and I think this refers specifically to the sin of unbelief. Read with me and you'll see why I think that, I think. And why he comes... Sorry, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Emphasis here on the sin of unbelief. So the Spirit's ministry of convicting the world of sin is a bittersweet ministry. Because it is designed to show the unbelieving world who they are before God and their need of Christ. And the good news about this conviction, this cross-examining work of the Spirit in consciences, is that some people who are in the world actually will come out and turn to Christ and be saved. Some who belong to the world will believe in Christ and come out because of the work of the Spirit convicting their hearts, showing them their need for Christ. The Spirit works to make people believe and come out of the world. Don Carson puts it well when he says this, the Holy Spirit presses home the world's sin despite the world's unbelief. He convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. This convicting work is therefore gracious. It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and so turn to Jesus and thus stop being the world. Have you, spe- have you felt the Holy Spirit convict and cross-examine your conscience? Are you feeling it now? Come out of the world. Believe in Christ and belong to Jesus. It's a gracious work that the Spirit does, showing us our need for Him. Well, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness and judgment as well. Look at verses 10 through 11. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Of this verse, Leon Morris says, The Spirit shows men, and no one else can do this, that their righteousness before God depends not on their own efforts, but on Christ's atoning work for them. Well put. The Holy Spirit shows individuals personally that their so-called righteousness is not true righteousness at all. 
True righteousness is only found in Jesus. And those who oppose Him, including Satan himself, will be judged accordingly. Jesus continues in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There are so many things these 11 disciples cannot bear or live out yet until the Spirit comes. Like clothes that are oversized, they will grow into the truth that Jesus tells them as the Spirit comes upon them. This requires a work of God, the Holy Spirit. A work that was at this point still future for these 11 men, but again will be coming at Pentecost in the near future, after the cross and resurrection. Look at verses uh, 13 and all the way to 15 with me as we conclude here. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God the Spirit will live in these believers and he will declare future things to them. Something only the true God can do. Most commentators believe that in these verses, Jesus is alluding to the writing of the New Testament. Jesus is telling them that they'll have a hand in writing the New Testament. They will be apostles. And this is true. John was there, and John wrote this book. And Peter was there, and he wrote books as well. After the Holy Spirit reveals the truth and significance of Christ to them, they'll hand down God's word to us and to the church throughout the ages. Through the different personalities of these men and others like the Apostle Paul, God the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture and has given us the authoritative Word of God about Jesus in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit guides us into all the truth and glorifies Christ, the one the truth centers in on. And the church depends on these writings. Because the New Testament gives us God's instruction, God's revelation, God's declaration, and interpretation of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. How would we make sense of the cross and resurrection without the New Testament, without the Holy Spirit giving us God's authoritative word on the cross and resurrection? Can you imagine your life without the New Testament? The New Testament is essential for the life of the church, isn't it? Just like the Holy Spirit is essential for the life of the church. Because even today, when we're being sent to haters who will reject us and our Savior, we have great needs, the church. We, the church, need the Spirit of God in us. And we, the church, need the Word of God in us. And thanks be to God, He has given us both. We are well equipped now for the mission ahead of us. So church, 
Let's not be shy about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a great privilege to know you as our Father, to know that the Spirit has worked to open our eyes, to open our heart, to receive and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would work your word into hearts, witnessed by the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ, to hearts that people would come out of the world and belong to Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.